Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and that you have spoken to us in your Son. As we look at John's testimony about the Lord Jesus this night, as we see Jesus speak to his disciples, we ask that you would speak to us. Help us to see old truths afresh, and I ask that you would help us all to respond rightly as we hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John, or the Gospel of John, as you may know, is roughly divided into two parts. Uh, Chapters 1 through to 12, the public ministry of Jesus to Israel is outlined. And then chapters 13 through 21, we see Jesus turn to his disciples, has a final meal with them, makes his way to the cross through the events of his passion to die for the sins of the world. In John 13, though, we get a kind of pause moment. It marks a major change in the gospel. John introduces it by means of a mini-prologue. We're told the time. It's almost time for the Passover festival. And we're also told that Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart this world and return to the Father. It's an auspicious moment. An hour that has been building and building and building and brewing through the gospel is coming to a climax. It's also a crowded hour. It's an hour that kind of takes out the rest of the gospel. There is so much that happens in this hour. It will be the hour of Jesus' death, his victorious resurrection, the hour where his mission from the Father will be completed. So that kind of sets the scene for us. But we're told just a little bit more, and and verse 1 is very important for setting up the rest of John chapter 13 for us. John tells us in John chapter 13 verse 1 that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. I want you to keep this little phrase in mind as we together work our way through this chapter. There's a little play on words here that John is is at want to do. The little phrase that John uses, uh, he loved them to the end, can be used in two ways, and often both of the ways are in play together. It could simply be, on the first hand, a temporal phrase. In other words, Jesus never stops loving his disciples. He loves them to the end of his ministry. And that takes him all the way to the cross. Or it could also have an intensive meaning, that Jesus loved them to the max. Jesus shows them the full extent of his love. So both are in play in this verse, and John uses this phrase to tell us about the love of Jesus. And we see this chapter, as it unfolds, we're going to see Jesus loving his disciples continually, And also he will love them at depth and at breadth. And this little statement gives us, as this gospel is a lot to do with love, it gives us the clearest statement, in my opinion, in the gospel, of the motivation for all that Jesus has been doing and saying. You know, we've had in past studies in John's gospel, John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way and all the rest. 
But John explicitly here tells us that everything has been done by Jesus because of the continual and deep love of Christ for his people. In our other reading, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would have power in order to comprehend the length, the width, the height, the depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, I assume Paul prays this for the Ephesians because he knows they'll never really get the full extent of God's love this side of glory. That's something we need to revisit over and over and over again. You know, although Christianity is all about one, it's kind of like Christianity 101, isn't it? We need to be reminded and ponder again and again the love of God to us. And so my question for you tonight is, how deep is your love? Well, here in John 13 is a good place to stop and take a look again at real love. And the first incident that we have in John chapter 13 is, of course, the foot washing which foreshadows Jesus' death in this simple act in the upper room. It's an act of service, and Jesus seems to extract maximum benefit out of this illustration. It's an illustration of his death as a serving death. It's an illustration of his death as a cleansing death, washing away sin. It's also an illustration of service for the disciples as well, acting as a model for their own humble, serving love of each other and to the world in which they will live. And there we pick up the story at verse 16. See, I don't know what you think about this night, this last night with Jesus. I think it would have been very disorientating as a night. And as we work through these chapters, it seems to get worse in chapter 14, it gets Much worse in 15. You know, you see here Jesus mucking around with time. He's speaking of future events at points as if they've already happened. He keeps talking about going away for a while, then coming back. And he does odd things like washing the disciples' feet. I think it would have been extremely disorientating. Just take the foot washing thing, for example. He's the master, then he becomes a servant, then he becomes the master again and tells them to follow him. Then he tells them even more strange things just in a moment's time. But as their master, he tells them that they are not greater than their master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. He's talking obviously here about his relationship with the disciples but probably also his relationship with his father. For Jesus has been sent as well. There is, again, this sense that dual things are happening. Uh, Look down with me at verse 17 of John chapter 13. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Jesus is driving home again the point of the foot washing, that enacted parable. But notice... He's not talking to all of them. And here we move into much darker territory. Look at verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. There's something wrong here. 
Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, a psalm that speaks of the painful treason of friends. The one who eats my bread. One of the great themes in the Messiah, David's life, is now picked up in the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus' life. He will be betrayed by a friend who shares his bread. The disciples, though, I think at this stage, let that one go through to the keeper. It's more or less, yet again, another incomprehensible thing that Jesus has said to them. They get the benefit of the Holy Spirit a little bit later on to help them look back and see exactly what was going on at this moment. But Jesus is making a point here as he continues in verse 19. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen you will believe that I am he. In a couple of other places in the Gospel of John, Jesus picks up the language of Yahweh in Isaiah. Yahweh keeps saying in Isaiah, and in fact throughout many parts of the Old Testament, I'm going to do something so that you will know that I am. In Isaiah, Yahweh says several things showing the people of Israel that he is the great I am. And one of these things in Isaiah is to inform God's people of the coming things, things that are about to happen. And Jesus does this on several occasions. As Jesus talks about what will happen in the future, so that you will know that I am. This is another one of those claims of Jesus to divinity that he makes all the time. He looks forward a little bit further to the mission of the disciples, which will be picked up in John chapter 20 later on. But look down with me at verse 20. I assure you, or truly, truly, the one who receives whomever I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. He's looking forward here to the time of mission. The disciples going out to the ends of the earth, declaring the work of Israel's Messiah to the world. There's much more, obviously, that can be said here at this point, but let's move on because we get to the heart of our passage in verse 21. Look with me at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. This is said by Jesus with anguish and passion. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The last time this particular verb or this expression was used was at the graveside of his dear friend Lazarus. As Jesus confronts the death of a friend and I think considers in that moment his own death, He's troubled in spirit. And it's here at this point where he is about to talk of his betrayer. And again, Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Thinking about the implications and the consequences. We're reminded that Jesus' love is deep and his love comes at great cost to himself. It's deeply personal. His love, of course, will take him to the cross. But he's troubled in his spirit as he contemplates that. 
The other interesting thing in that verse is the use of the word testified. It's a verb that has been used throughout the gospel and it conveys a, a legal theme. An accusation is about to be made. He doesn't just say something and leave it out there. He testifies. And what does he testify? Well, there's a rat in the ranks. One of you will betray me. I wonder if you're in the room, I I imagine you'd do exactly what the disciples did next. They start looking at one another. They are uncertain which one he was speaking about. You can guess what's going on through their thoughts, can't you? Uh, Thinking, well, I'll bet it's Thaddeus. I'll bet it's Peter. Whoever. Others are probably denying, hey, it's not me, it's not me. Perhaps others are wondering if the pressure of the moment, this hour, is getting to Jesus and he's just getting a little bit paranoid. What's actually going on? Well, two of the disciples decide to take things into their own hands. Have a look down at verse 23. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? So Peter and John signal between each other to find out who Jesus perhaps had in mind. John is not actually named here, is he? He's named as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I got an email from a mate about this title, the beloved disciple. Uh, he had a friend who was not a Christian. And this friend was reading the Gospel of John, came across this title, fired off an email to him. He wanted to know what's this beloved disciple thing all about. You know, has he got tickets on himself or something? Because at the moment, at that point in this text, he's kind of standing out. What's going on? Well, it's just—it's worth reflecting on this just for a moment. On this title. Most scholars see the whole beloved disciple as the opposite of having tickets on yourself. It's generally seen as a deliberate attempt by the author of the gospel to, well, conceal his identity as a disciple, with a view to Jesus getting all the glory from the testimony that he writes. And I think that's right, but I perhaps think there's more to say. I think... It's a title that has been taken for the sake of you and I, the readers of the gospel. What does the title tell us? Well, he is the disciple whom Jesus has loved. What does that mean? It means that he has been loved to the end. John 13, 1. Jesus has come to his own and has loved them to the end. He is the one to whom Jesus has shown the full extent of his love. And a little while later in John chapter 14, we'll see that the one who has been loved by the Father and the Son will have the Father and the Son reveal themselves to him. This same disciple is reclining close to Jesus, close to Beside Jesus, Uh, the original Greek text says that he was reclining at the bosom of Jesus, the colpon of Christ. 
reading the gospel carefully, we might recall the same idea from the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. Jesus, the only unique Son of God, at the bosom, the colpon of the Father, has made him known. By putting two and two together and hopefully not getting five, I think we have a, a picture of the beloved disciple, therefore, as someone who has, well, been loved to the max, who has had the Father and the Son revealed to him and is now reclining at the breast of Jesus, the location of God's revelation. So we can trust his testimony. It's part of an ongoing apologetic that runs through John chapter 13 to 17 about why we should trust the testimony of this gospel. So to this gospel, the gospel of John can exegete, expose, reveal, explain Jesus. And because of the love of Jesus for him, that testimony spills over to us also, the reader. And we understand his witness of the story and therefore the significance of Jesus. That was a slight digression. Let's get back to the story. I mean, who is going to betray Jesus? Who is going to betray Jesus? Jesus replies, verse 26, Jesus replied, He's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. We all know that it's Judas who is named. Judas, along with a handful of other names, Adolf, Jezebel and Attila, are amongst the names we didn't or will never consider when naming our children. I mean, Judas is synonymous with betrayal. I looked just this week at a list of top ten betrayers on the internet, and sure enough, 2,000 years later, Judas remains number one. 2,000 years later. Ahead of Brutus of Julius Caesar fame, Benedict Arnold, an American citizen who sold secrets to the Russians in the Cold War, and the Norwegian trader Quislin, you may not know, any of those people. But betrayal is a shocking term. It's shocking, isn't it? The enemy that you thought was a friend then turns against you, actively moves and works against your best interests, often by stealth. And of course, we know that Judas is the one. Uh, Judas gets a couple of mentions in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, he's called the devil. Uh, You get the feeling that John, as he writes this Gospel, hasn't really forgotten nor forgiven him, nor the other Gospel writers, for that matter. He regularly appears last on the list of the disciples and is often branded clearly the betrayer. And maybe John never, ever liked him. We're told in John chapter 12 that we looked at last week that Judas was a thief. He was helping himself to the collective funds of the group. He was the treasurer. 
And so maybe when Jesus gives Judas the morsel of bread, he perhaps thinks, aha, I knew it all along. We're not told. Let's think more about Judas for a moment. He is sitting very close to Jesus. Close enough to be given a morsel of bread. Jesus apparently likes to keep his enemies close. In fact, very close. Knowing a little bit about seating and how it worked at this table in the first century was probably a U-shaped table. Jesus at the head, reclining, leaning back at an elbow, his head's towards the table. Not like Leonardo da Vinci's long table where everyone's sitting you know, in a long stretched out line. I think he's done something of a disservice there. John is on one side and he's leaning back upon Jesus' breast and asks him the question, but it's Jesus who is able to give Judas a morsel of bread. It must mean that Judas is very close by, possibly on the other side of Jesus. We're not told, so we can't go too far with this, but the positions of honour, the right and the left, may well have been filled with John and Judas. Very close. Judas has, of course, just had his feet washed by by Jesus, the Saviour. No, and now Jesus offers Judas food. We know again from the time that this was an act of friendship, the sharing of bread in terms of the psalm, Psalm 41. Jesus is sharing bread with his betrayer. Judas is being loved to the end. John 13, 1. Jesus keeps his enemy close in order to love him perhaps even to appeal to him not to do what he's about to do. Jesus loves Judas to the end. Back in John chapter 12, Jesus says that he has come to save, not to judge, John 12, 47. And here I think we see this in action, the love of God in action to save right up until the last moment. Judgment will fall. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But it will fall as a consequence of a refusal to accept Jesus' offer of love and friendship that's there. And so Judas will go and betray Jesus. What on earth possessed Judas to do this? Why would he do this? Well, John tells us that Satan possessed Judas. That's why he did it. Satan entered him. John chapter 13, verse 27. After Judas Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Did Judas's eyes suddenly glow red and he grew small red horns on his head and grabbed hold of a plastic pitchfork? Earlier we're told in the account that Satan put into the heart of Judas the desire to betray Jesus, Jesus, verse 2. I mean, what has Satan done? What does this mean? Well, elsewhere in the gospel, Satan is called the father of lies. And perhaps it's lies 
that Satan is putting on the heart and mind of Judas. This is not a head-spinning, green-vomit movie depiction of possession by the devil. No, I think it's something much more covert and subtle. He's the father of lies. Now, what kind of lies would Satan be planting at this stage? Well, the big lie, of course, is that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. The divine son of the father. Perhaps the lie planted was that Jesus is just the son of a carpenter from a hick town with delusions of grandeur and he's just got to go. Perhaps the lie planted is that Jesus' plan's not working out, he needs some help, or perhaps it's the lie that there are more important things than the kingdom of God. That buying a kingdom and financial security for oneself is more important. We know that Judas was greedy. And perhaps here we see how the world, the flesh and the devil work together. The world, those forces that are opposing Jesus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees which Judas will side with, wanting Jesus off the scene, the fleshly weakness of Judas' own greed, and thirdly, the father of lies, seeing a chance and taking it, creating a perfect storm of the world, the flesh and the devil. Perhaps Judas's love was not quite deep enough. But there were other things that he loved more. There was an opportunity there to be taken advantage of. And whatever it was, Satan enters Judas and the plan goes forward. But note, friends, as usual, nothing Nothing is out of the Lord's sovereign control in John's gospel. Verse 27b, Therefore Jesus told him, What you're doing, do quickly. At this point, there's not much more to be said. Just, let's just get on with it. The scripture must be fulfilled that he would be betrayed. Things are just playing out. But the good shepherd, though, he will lay down his life for the sheep. He will not have his life taken from him. This whole exchange, has been, as we have been reflecting on, looks like a dramatic, climactic, final act of love by Jesus as he loves Judas, even his betrayer, to the end. An act of love that turns into a supreme act of judgment as Judas leaves, as a final offer is rejected, as the final offer of love sifts and separates. Now, no one reclining at that table understands it. They actually don't get much at all through this night. Now have a look at the final verses, verse 28 through 30. None of those reclining at the table knew why he told them this. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he, that's Judas, went out immediately 
and it was night. Into the darkness goes Judas, leaving behind the light of the world. Where does this leave us? What to say? Well, firstly, a quick comment on Judas. No one likes a betrayer, and that's fair enough. But John helps us to see here who the real enemy is. Satan is at work. Sometimes I need to be reminded that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, especially those who infuriate me with their behavior and their denials of the true and living God. Satan is the real enemy, not the unbeliever. They need rescue. They need saving. They are certainly complicit and responsible for their sins and their actions, but there is far more going on. But the big story here is the love of Jesus. Therefore, the love of God. It's the big story of this chapter. It's the big story of this gospel. It's the big story of the Bible. The only thing going for all people is that God loves them. It's a story of love that serves. It's a story of love that lays down a life. It's a story of a love that goes to the very end. A love that reveals itself to others for the sake, for their sake. So that they may come to know the true and living God and so have life in his name. It's, it's a love that persists with the enemy to the moment of even final betrayal. It's a love that keeps an enemy close at hand in order to love them. I mean, do you have enemies? And if so, how do you respond? I mean, I can hold a grudge with the best of them. I can still remember the moment when Craig McDermott was incorrectly given out off the bowling of Kirtley Ambrose of the West Indies at the Adelaide Oval in the 1992-93 series that we lost. We lost that test by one run. We lost the series. That's insignificant, but there it is. But it plays out in relationships. If I have an enemy, I will remember and I can find a way to hold a grudge. But real enemies. Real enemies. I mean, we'll always have, and we certainly do have, uh, public enemies to the Christian faith. And again, we need to work out how we respond to them. But personal enemies. How do we respond? I was beginning to prepare this sermon, and particularly the beginning of this week, the old Bee Gees hit came to mind. How deep is your love? I'm so glad this sermon is almost over so that I can move on to another hit. But it's a good question. How deep is your love? Not a great song, but a great question. How deep is your love? You know, most of us are very good at loving our friends. You know, we've got those close friends who we love deeply. Then we've got some friends that sort of move out from there again, but right to the periphery. What about our enemies? How will we love them? 
continually to the max? How deep is your love? It's not a bad question, but I think there's a better question to end with, and that is, how deeply have you been loved? How deeply have you been loved? I can still recall the shock when I discovered by God's grace and mercy that the Bible, the New Testament, and narrowing it down to Romans chapter 5, described me and describes you as enemies of God. Paul tells us that God showed his continual maximal love for me, for you, for us, that while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, helpless, while we were enemies, God made a way for us to be right with God through the death of his son. Having loved his own who were in the world, John tells us, Jesus loved them to the end. How deep is that love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the love of Jesus Christ. Father, that he loved his own to the very end. Father, we thank you and praise you for the continual love of Jesus, for the maximal love of Jesus. Father, help us to know the love of Jesus, not just intellectually, but that it would penetrate deep into our bones. And Father, we pray that the love of Jesus would so alter our lives. Father, that we live lives of love, for the sake of all people, even our enemies. Father, we pray this night for those of us who know the love of Jesus, in the power of your Spirit, help us to love people continually, fully, that they may too know Jesus and have life in his name. And Father, for those of us here tonight who don't yet know you, Father, would you convict us of our need for the love of Jesus? Respond to him in faith and therefore know life and life to the full. Father, all this we ask for the glory and the renown of our Saviour, Lord and conquering King, Jesus Christ. Amen.